Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. Here today, uh, joining me from Stanford University, Corey Shockey. And in our tiny studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., the original Undersecretary of SNARK and Georgetown University's own Rosa Brooks, and one of our very, very favorite guests and the managing editor of Lawfare, Susan Hennessy. Guys, the President of the United States did something remarkable last week. He went to Europe. And based on my careful analysis of over 312 presidential overseas trips, he had the worst one ever. Now, before we get to that— Don't you think, David, that George W. Bush vomiting on the Japanese was up there? Well, that's very interesting, and this (laughs) is the 25th anniversary— H.W. Yes, this is the 25th anniversary year of him vomiting. He actually just vomited on himself, however, while sitting next to the Japanese prime minister. Um, but Whereas Trump that metaphorically is worth... vomited on everybody else. Yeah. Yes, mostly on us. But before <laughs> we get into this, I do want to give Corey an opportunity. Corey, what was the first overseas presidential trip? <laughs> Wow, uh, that is an excellent question to which I honestly do not know the answer. I am thinking Susan. about you had American presidents who were overseas before they were president. Uh, anybody? Theodore Roosevelt would be my guess. Gosh, anybody else want to guess? Question. I'm I don't Googling know. I can, I can tell you a lot no, about stop the Googling. controversy <laughs> over whether or not the executive branch got to uh, recognize, determine who they recognize as a foreign government. Um, but I do not know the first overseas trip. Well, it does say that. Well, uh, Corey, as okay, usual, wait a minute, wait a minute. Corey is I, right. I know the answer. I know Corey the answer. Corey is absolutely know- right by amazing miracle. Yeah. Yes. Yes, because you Googled it. Because I Googled it. You Googled it and are a loser. Hey, I'm a law professor. We Google stuff. Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I could have told you this because in November of 1906, Theodore Roosevelt went to inspect the progress on the Panama Canal. And since then, presidents have made trips. Most of them made a few, but starting with Bill Clinton, they started to make a lot. Clinton visited 70 countries. George W. Bush visited 72 countries. Barack Obama, 55 or something such countries. Um, But Donald Trump, on his only his second trip, managed to do something that none of them have ever done before, because on all 312 prior trips, the president of the United States was either the president of a rising major power 
or he was the leader of the free world. And Trump is the first president ever to be neither. Corey, your thoughts. Uh, Yes, I agree that President Trump did substantial damage to America's standing in the world at uh, both with his speech in Warsaw and at the meeting of the G20. The the greatest damage I, I perceive in the president's behavior was that America's greatest strength in the international order is that we have created a system of institutions and rules that are mutually beneficial to those who voluntarily participate in them. That is that the fact that we have allies and voluntary adherence to the order that we wanted is our great strength. And by by behaving badly at the G20 meeting, not having an agenda going in, being completely disinterested in the proceedings, refusing to join the consensus statement, uh, right? Like consensus statements are watered down in order to get approval. He refused to uh, join the consensus statement on the on the climate change piece. But most importantly, in highlighting bilateral meetings, the ones he stepped out of and let his daughter Ivanka be the American representative, most importantly, the bilateral meeting with President Trump, excuse me, with President Putin. They're interchangeable, my God! <laughs> um, that by highlighting those bilateral arrangements and hyping the U.S.-Putin meeting, What he did was serve to push to the margins America's allies and the broad consensus we have with the G20 countries on so much of the international order. And I think that's not only hugely damaging, it's likely to be very consequential over time. So, Susan, once again, you get to listen as Corey sugarcoats it. Tell yes, us she what is. She's, really so, she's so gentle and kind. That's why she always Trump. wears the tiara of optimism. Exactly. Um, I am you know, right now wearing the rhinestone tiara of optimism that you guys gave me. So thank you. That's it. That's as optimistic as it gets. Um, look, you know, Corey is absolutely right, as she uh, usually or, or always is. Um, I mean, the amazing thing about this is the squandered opportunity, right? So even if he didn't want to talk about climate change, even if he was sort of in this, you know, adversarial position vis-a-vis our allies and the rest of the G20, you know, we he North Korea had just demonstrated that they had uh, achieved an intercontinental ballistic missile capacity. This is a threat to everybody. Talk about sort of like the shared purpose, the common enemy, the ability for the United States to get out there and show that we still lead, we still matter on things, to build consensus with our allies, even in a way that might have been favorable to Trump, right? It might have been sort of a vision that he would have liked. And just to come away with no statement on North Korea, you know, not to mention sort of the really bizarre optics coming out of that Trump-Putin meeting. I mean, just what a what a waste and, and what a diminishing waste it all ended up being. Rosa, don't yeah. you want to have your <laughs> chance to take a shot here? <laughs> well, I was thinking, on, do you remember... Do you remember when Barack Obama was first elected and he traveled around and the right excoriated him and claimed he was making a so-called apology tour of the world? I think Donald Trump is doing the fuck you tour of the world. Uh, wow. Um, <laughs> so I suppose if you add them Boy, together want, and kind of shake I, them out, you, you get I want to get one of the roadies. I want to get one of the I want to get one of the roadie jackets for the fuck you yeah, tour the fuck of you, the world. Fuck you tour. America. Yeah. America first and fuck you. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's not much more to be said except that it is both depressing and, as usual, rather bizarre. Uh, the the as as Susan said, the Trump Putin meeting was just weird. <laughs> I mean, I do uh, sometimes think. I sometimes find myself when I'm not recalling all the damage he's doing to the world and the people therein, I find myself feeling a little tiny bit sorry for Donald Trump because he is just so utterly outclassed, outgunned, uh, and sort of outbrained in every possible way by pretty much everybody he encounters. Um, Vladimir Putin uh, was just one of many examples during the G20 meeting. But but the the tweets coming out of that, the sort of we're going to have a joint cybersecurity enter- enterprise. Oh no, we're Which not. Oh yes, we are. It was, I know it didn't make any sense. It, 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 I was as an American citizen. This is not the first time as an American citizen that I have been embarrassed by one of our presidents. In fact, um, uh, I've been embarrassed by many of our presidents in my lifetime. But, but this really was up there with cringe-inducing. Uh, Oh God, world! Uh, a, we are so sorry, and B, I really hope we can get through the next three and a half years. So I found that reaction to this sort of cyber security security unit idea really interesting, because it it's a terrible idea, and he's going about it the entire wrong way. And we don't really need their help on on uh, securing our systems against. Well, we need hacking. their help, like we need the fox's help with the hen house. Well, right. There was this sort of um, like almost instinctive response of that's ridiculous. Why would we ever cooperate with Russia on these issues? Yet our adversaries are who we have to reach those types of agreements with. Um, Right. So the the Xi Jinping uh, agreement is a pretty good example, right, of reaching a norm against economic espionage with the Chinese, who were the perpetrators of, of economic espionage. And so as much as um, Trump is not going about it in a way that makes any sense, he's not um, he's he's sort of sacrificing his leverage at the outset. And, and the, the like execution is ridiculous. The actual the sort of instinct there is not necessarily wrong. Um, and I, I just find it sort of interesting how um, how strongly people felt about sort of coming out against that and and the inability of the administration to actually seize on a somewhat reasonable talking point in response. Instead, they just kind of all let it, you know, people would go on TV and, and support the idea. And then all of a sudden he's tweeting, like, never, never mind. mind. It was yeah. just such it was such a strange episode. Well, let me let me offer a slightly different perspective on that. Um, I don't think negotiating with an adversary is a bad idea. Um, But this wasn't what he said. He didn't say we're going to negotiate with the Russians and establish norms. He said we're going to develop a cybersecurity unit in which both sides will be working together. And by the way, implicit in this, presumably sharing insights and secrets with each other in order to create a, quote, impenetrable Internet. Now, first of all, there's no such thing as an impenetrable Internet. But secondly, this wasn't a negotiation. It was saying, let's create a collaboration with our enemy on cybersecurity. Um, And, you know, setting aside all the complications of that, that's very different from a negotiation. Sure. No, absolutely. I think the terminology— 
Oops, I'm sorry, Susan. Please go ahead. No, I just um, I, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to point out that what he had said was an impenetrable cybersecurity unit, which I actually don't know what that means. Well, nobody knows what that means. That's the and this of the from thing. the former NSA general counsel. I, that's that's a little bit of a job promotion, but I'm going to take, <laughs> take it. it. I'm not even going to correct you take on that one. Well, it was it was an impenetrable idea, and that's yes. something, right? But but let's let's go back because I will end up with this. But we've got a little bit of time, and I want to go back because somebody out there listening to Deep State Radio is going to be sitting there going, "These guys are so unfair." That Donald is a nice guy. He dresses well. Ivanka sure looked nice in that seat. Why are they picking on him? And so I want to be very clear that we are being fair and objective. So let's start with the Poland trip. Let's start with how did that go? Um, Corey, take a shot at, 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 at breaking it down a little bit more granularly than you did before. Sure. Well, I think the president's speech in Warsaw was sort of equal parts the dark apocalyptic vision of his inaugural address, leavened with some uh, what I think the White House thinks of as optimistic vision, which is the red in tooth and claw defense of Western civilization. Um, these guys really are Huntingtons. They really Huntingtonian. They really do believe that that you know we're losing the war for Christmas, kind of, uh, and we need to defend it at every rampart. And they seem not to realize how much the current international order is a glowing success of the values we Americans hold to be self-evident that the international order has voluntarily adopted since 1945 and are now prevalent in the order. And to the extent they have experienced setbacks, it's because of the challenges of prosperity after the 2008 financial crisis and the challenges of our foreign policy choices that have dented the magnetism of our model. So the solution to those things is not the solution that President Trump was offering in Warsaw. Um, it was more a reminder of the extent to which the United States doesn't appear to understand the very values and economic principles that have made for the success of the American-led international order. So, Corey, you don't think I, yeah, him saying the magic words of Article 5 just made everything better? I think the fact that he chose to view the European Union as a threat to... Um, to European unity and to transatlantic connection is at least 25 years out of date, that he chose to do it in a country that is cracking down on the press and that is trending strongly anti-authoritarian. And he did so without ever mentioning either of those two things in the place or meeting with democracy activists, members of solidarity, any of the forces that have made Poland democratic uh, since the end of the Cold War and are now under siege. And the fact that he clearly prefers authoritarian strongmen 
to the kinds of democratic leaders that Germany has, that uh, many of America's other allies have, is, I think, a message that everyone's taking. And it's causing them to question whether American power will still be a force for advancing those values. You know, you said there, by the way, inadvertently anti-authoritarian trend. They're actually trending authoritarian. And in fact, the authoritarian... Excuse me, that is what I meant. No, I know. And I just wanted to pick up on that by saying that when Trump went on his rant in which, you know, he went after the former president of the United States and he went after the intelligence community findings, he also went after fake news. And within 24 hours, the Polish president was also using the terminology fake news proving that when the United States president takes a stance on something like uh, intimidating the press, he's actually opening the door for authoritarian leaders to say, well, he did it so I can do it. But, you know, Rosa, it seems to me that, you know, Corey is getting to one of the core issues here. Um, uh, There was a very good piece in The Atlantic by James Fallows on this point regarding the president's speech, which the White House wanted to tout as this great kind of leaderly speech. But the themes of the speech were not about sort of ideas and ideals. They were about civilization and blood. They were essentially saying we're the West, which means parenthetically we're white, mostly Christian. And we've got to buy, stand together Ivanka against the world that isn't as... Ivanka was sent off to the Warsaw as, Ghetto Memorial. Ivanka well, is yeah, the, well, the honorary Jew. Well, I think she's more than honorary. <laughs> but, but, but the point is, it was very... It, you know, it had subtle undertones of the kind of nationalist image that has led to our immigration policy, right? Oh, I would disagree with the word subtle. Um, but but other than that, yeah, of course. <laughs> Rosa, no, uh, you're so great. <laughs> you're absolutely right, Corey. <laughs> okay. No, no I, I mean it was it was an odd speech, and you're you're right, David, to challenge my previous characterization of this as the fuck you tour because because some of that fuck youism was pointed right back right back at uh, the everybody in the United States. Donald Trump doesn't like from President Obama to the intelligence community when they happen to disagree with him. So it was in its own way, uh, you know, it was a weird, weird mix of accusation and self-flagellation, a sort of, you know, oh, the U.S., we didn't get, you know, we screwed up in Iraq. We're probably screwing up in our intelligence now. um, But now we all have to hang together uh, because we're all, yeah, we're all white people. Um, It's... Well, I guess I is this good news or is this bad news? I'm 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 sort of at a loss for words here because is it good news or is it bad news that that what the U.S. president says still has ripples and is emulated around the world? I mean, the, the good news is that uh, you know the bully pulpit remains a bully pulpit. Donald Trump says something wacky, and all the other whack jobs uh, in the world immediately embrace the wackiness. Um, you know, so I suppose we still have influence uh, in the same way we've always had. You know that when the U.S. does good things, it inspires others. When the U.S. does bad things, it inspires others. Uh, and and I think that the needless to say, from a from a from the perspective of protecting and and uh, fostering a culture of human rights around the world, uh, to have the president of the United States so openly seem to be embracing uh, so many both already autocratic and lethal regimes and regimes that are trending in that direction 
uh, is is really really scary. And and you know we we haven't we haven't lost all influence in decline as we may be. Uh, that has real consequences for for empowering. Uh, autocrats and repressive regimes around the world. And and I think that we're going to see that accelerating. And speaking of influence, I mean, it was clear that it was sort of Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon's fingerprints really were all over that speech. In some ways, it's like we're back to the inauguration. It's clear that while there'd been lots of reports about like diminished influence and that group being marginalized by the axis of adults and and Jared and Ivanka saving the world. (laughs) We're down to Ivanka. Jared's been eliminated. So (laughs) the axis is shrinking. (laughs) <laughs> it's just a straight line now, or yeah. whatever it is. Jared, Jared's in witness. Jared's in witness protection at this point. We don't, we don't know where he is. But when he turns on his dad, he's going to be and his father-in-law. He's going to be in deep trouble. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Susan. No, I mean that's. I think it's my my point. Really, was just that. Um, that instinct of his to sort of to rely on um, some of his uh, least constructive, uh, most sort of pernicious advisors, uh, I think that really was on full display. Um, and it's while it's incredibly disturbing whenever we see it at home, um, there's something even more shocking um, just to see that, that those kinds of words coming out of an American president's mouth when he's abroad. Okay, well, let me ask you one follow up question on that, Susan, because you were, as Corey said, the uh, head of the National Security Agency, um, and, or, or something like that. Um, Come on, give me I a cooler wanna... job than that if we're going to make up my. <laughs> yeah, okay, whatever. You're the you were the host of The Apprentice, and what 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 I what I want to say is, and I don't want to you know flog a dead horse unless the dead horse deserves to be flogged, and this one deserves to be flogged. Um, and it won't be the, the one I wrote it on. Yeah, exactly. Corey Shockey's horse deserves to be flogged, but that's another story. The the uh, sorry, sorry. I, it was just you know, it was inevitable in the flow of this. But look, believe me, if I had a choice between a horse and a pastrami sandwich, I take the pastrami sandwich every single time. But uh, Susan, you, you, as a former member of the intelligence community. When the president gets up and questions intelligence findings overseas, I don't really recall this ever happening before, but it did happen in Poland, and it was a kind of precursor, a foreshadowing of what was going to happen with Putin. How do people in the intelligence community react to, 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 to that kind of behavior? So, look, I, I certainly cannot um, uh, sort of say I speak on behalf of the intelligence community, although I, I do. Uh, I think it's fair to say that there's um, a widely felt sense of just bewilderment, honestly, of, you know, that the evidence here, um, frankly, the publicly available evidence, we don't even have to go into sort of the classified material. The publicly available evidence is overwhelming. Reports about the kind of intelligence they're relying on, the language that the intelligence community is using, right? High confidence. That's intelligence community speak for positive. They don't use terms like positive because they're sort of, that's not part of sort of the the craft. So I think it is, um, I think it's 
baffling and bewildering and demoralizing. You know, the intelligence community and, and places like NSA are already sort of um, under attack from a lot of different fronts, or at least under pressure on a lot of different fronts. Um, so some of them are um, are sort of positive elements of a robust debates over civil liberties uh, at home, which is a good thing, but but does put pressure. Others are sort of the the post-Snowden disclosures, uh, the shadow brokers, um, you know, reports about sort of massive troves of NSA's tools having been stolen, uh, issues like sequestration, hiring retention, um, you know, re- reports about sort of a workforce demoralized by uh, by reorganization after reorganization. I mean, really, we have an intelligence community that is already under a huge amount of pressure, is struggling to keep the best and the brightest, does really, really important work. And on top of sort of that already, frankly, scary situation um, to have a U.S. president sort of impugning um, their work and and really their integrity, because what he's talking about is is not a mistake having been made, right? That's That hasn't been his talking point. His talking point has been that they politicized this intelligence. And, and what he's saying is the intelligence community lied. They are lying about what they actually believed happened. And, and I think that has ripple effects um, that we are going to feel for a very, very long time. And, and I I fear that one of those effects are going to be that we are going to lose a generation of talent that decides not to enter the intelligence community and a generation of talent that decides to leave the intelligence community because it's already very, very difficult, underpaid, in some cases, dangerous work. And Sort of that that sense of connection to the mission, of feeling like what you are doing is valued and worthwhile. It's just so incredibly important. Um, and while we see some of the president's cabinet members, you know, from Secretary Mattis to DNI Coates and others, sort of trying to use that rally the troops, you know, uh, positive morale boosting rhetoric, they just can't overcome a, a U.S. president that is is constantly sort of treating his own intelligence community as if they're the enemy. All right. So those are good points, Susan. But something really good happened in the intelligence community this week, and I would like one of you to take a guess at what it was. I mean, I, I'm assuming all kinds of birthdays, anniversaries. Um, nice. Very nice. Well, I'm not going to – no, way more important cafeteria. than that. Daniel Craig agreed to sign on to another round as James Bond. That's British intelligence, David. We don't get well, them. Oh, I don't know. Well, that's true. We used to cooperate with them. Perhaps they don't cooperate <laughs> with us anymore. Um, moving on. In fact, from I Poland. do think that is one big important point that that cl- America's allied governments now have to be very careful about what they tell the the White House and whether they can share information, even in trusted channels in our intelligence community, in ways that aren't going to blow back on them. When it can't be too encouraging for them when the president gets up and says, I don't know how many agencies we've got in the intelligence community. Can it possibly be 17? <laughs> um, which was a real. But can I just take a minute to <laughs> rant about the dumbest possible talking point that has emerged, including from the president's own Twitter stream? And that's that it's an error to say that 17 intelligence agencies agreed about the Russian hacking. And in fact, it was only four, and this was this big mistake. 
Yeah, the Coast Guard does not weigh in on assessments of Russian hacking. When when the uh, you know Office of, of National Intelligence uh, issues an assessment, they are speaking for everyone. That is a unanimous assessment. I have no idea where this really dumb point came from. I sort of suspect <laughs> like Sean Hannity or something, but I just wish it would go away. And and I you know I do think it's important just to just to remind everybody that we don't have to say the intelligence community is perfect. We all know it's not. Uh, We know that the intelligence community is subject to all kinds of warped incentives in terms of the internal government structures. Uh, We know that sometimes uh, bad information squeezes out good information. We know that sometimes, uh, and obviously we can all think of examples in the last uh, 15 years or so, uh, that there have been conclusions reached with high confidence that have turned out to be wrong. And and I I you know going back to the difference between apologizing and fuck youing, you know, uh, I I don't think there's anything inappropriate about an American president. In fact, I think it's a good thing taking ownership of mistakes and saying saying yeah, we sometimes get it wrong and and we are always reevaluating evaluating and reevaluating our own conclusions because we are we are fully and humbly aware that we don't always get things right but there's a big difference obviously as susan suggested between between acknowledging that in a healthy way a way that's healthy for our allies and healthy for our own institutions versus just suggesting you know i don't know who these people are <laughs> they just make stuff up who knows uh, because that obviously as susan said is is incredibly demoralizing for the people who are working hard to do their best to come up with the best information, not to speak of rather baffling for our allies and our adversaries alike who are left thinking, well, wait a minute. So who do you listen to? I guess we listen to Putin is the answer. I mean, there's even a more serious So I also have a, a positive development from the intelligence community to highlight. It wasn't this last week, but it did make a big impression on me. And that was when President Trump held that weird North Korean feeling cabinet meeting where everyone was competing to talk about how great he was. Um, it got a lot of press coverage that the Secretary of Defense uh calmly, professionally said how proud he was to serve the men and women of our defense establishment. But even before Jim did that, the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, was the first person to dissent from the behavior everybody was exhibiting and say what a privilege it was for him to lead the men and women of our intelligence community who day in, day out, put their lives at risk to keep the country safe. I thought that was a really important moment for Dan Coates and a really important thing all of us should realize about his professionalism and the way he's leading the community. I think there's also there's a little bit of a sense that this is all about, oh, you know, the intelligence community having their feelings hurt. Um, It's also a huge strategic mistake for President Trump himself. Um, So someday, sooner or later, probably sooner, um, the United States is going to want to take action on the basis of intelligence that they've gathered, whether it's dropping a bomb in Syria, whether it's moving troops, all kinds of things um, uh, depend on uh, us being able to say, we assess this to be true with high confidence and we can show some of you some of it or some of you all of it, but we are not making this information public. And the rest of the world saying, okay, we believe you or we accept that, that you're doing this on the basis of, of, of these facts or your understanding of these facts. For Trump to have preemptively created a situation in which 
he himself says you can't rely on the intelligence community. Well, that is going to come back currency. to bite him in, yeah. in a really potentially very, very dangerous Well, and, and also, obviously, it's we, a great use, point, we use Susan. our intelligence in all kinds of ways. We use our willingness to selectively share our intelligence with others, for instance, as a, as a carrot, as a way to get their cooperation, uh, as, as well as as a stick to say, hey, we've got this intelligence, and if you don't want us to act on it, clean up your act. Um, you know, and, and when we have the president going around saying, oh, yeah, this, this, is, this is just worthless anyway, we, we can neither use it as an inducement, uh, nor, nor can we use it as a, as a threat. Well, and, you know, one of the problems that compounds this is the fact that the president is a pathological liar and the people around him are pathological liars. And so that even if they say they believe intelligence, they have intelligence, they don't have intelligence. There's this many agencies. We reached this kind of agreement. We didn't reach an agreement. Nobody believes them anyway. And well, we're going to get to that. Well, I realize this is the, the sort of angels on the head of the pin, David. But as you know, there's an important metaphysical debate about whether Trump is a pathological liar or whether you can't call someone a liar unless they have some awareness of the concept of truth, in which case Trump just says random things. Yeah, be fair, David. <laughs> be fair, he might David. be mentally ill. I think it precisely. Yeah, that's, a really good, that's a really good point. Thank Thanks for straightening me out. But let me go to the non-Trump component of this as our listeners, because they're deep state nerds and they're really, really smart. No, we tape these at the day before we run the first of them and a couple days before we run the second. And so things happen as we're taping them. And one of the things that just happened, we earlier were talking about the um, the unit that we were going to set up between the Russians and the U.S. on cyber. And we noted that the president had asserted they were going to set up a unit, and then he tweeted out that they weren't going to set up a unit. And as we are recording this, there was a White House press conference in which the deputy press secretary said, um, there are a lot of questions about this, and there are a lot of reports. And in fact, discussions may still take place on the cyber unit. So it's dead, it's not dead, and maybe it's dead or it's not. It's one of those things, though, for sure. It's definitely and, and, one and, of those things. So I, I have been wondering whether uh, the speed with which that died a much-deserved watery death was uh, that the intelligence chiefs or others might have balked at it. And that's why the Dan Coates moment is sticking so much in my mind. Uh, yeah, but it died, and then three hours later, because, three hours later, it was alive again. That you know, it took Jesus three days. It's it's I mean, taken this thing three hours to come back to life. Can we really be more than six months away from a major cabinet resignation? It's hard to believe that we haven't seen any already. Yeah, it's well, it really stunning. doesn't speak well to the character of the cabinet. Let let me move forward now to Hamburg. We've got about twenty minutes left in this episode, and I want to make sure I get to the key points. I want to talk about trade. I want to talk about the environment. Then I want to talk about the Putin meeting. So let's try to keep it maybe five minutes on each of those things. But one of the big first slaps across Trump's face. He arrives in Hamburg, the city that made the Beatles famous, um, and you know. He, you know, this is going to be his big G20 debut. And within not too much time of arriving there, the Japanese announce with the Europeans a trade deal that is the biggest trade deal that's been announced in many, many years and is a complete slap in the U.S. face because essentially TPP, which Trump walked away from saying, I'm not going to do any more deals of this kind, was a U.S.-Japan deal. 
And now you have the Japanese saying, fine, we'll do a deal with the Europeans. And trade liberalization is going to continue without you, United States of America. That seemed to me to be a pretty powerful you know, uh, uh, shot to the jaw of Trump as he arrived into town. Anybody else think that that was uh, resonant? I do too, David. In fact, let me just say, I think you're exactly right. I think the Japanese understood when we unilaterally walked away from TPP that they were go if they were going to get the Trump administration anywhere that wasn't damaging on trade, they were going to have to do a tool track, a dual track policy. The first is proceeding on trade without us, and the second. Uh, making better bilateral deals than the Trump administration seems to believe it can make with Japan and denying that outcome to us. I think it's both carrot and stick. It preserves the opportunity for the U.S. to opt in, but it seeks to remove the opportunity for the U.S. to unilaterally reshape either the multilateral agreements or the bilateral agreement with Japan. I think it's super sharp policy on the Japanese part. And the thing that kills me about all this, needless to say, is that the the losers are that the losers are we're the loser in all of this. And you know, David, uh, our our Twitter base um, has been calling for a, a episode of Deep State Radio on on the crisis in Venezuela. Uh, and uh, reading about what's going on in Venezuela and reading about uh, uh, Trump in Hamburg and the EU-Japan trade deal, all I could think was, you know, there is a moral to this story, which is that when nations start down the path of protectionism, it doesn't usually end well. Uh, and I, I really wish that some, in, in addition to watching Fox News or whatever it is he watches, that Trump would be following the news in Venezuela because I, I think we don't we don't want to go in that direction. Uh, but but and thank goodness we're we are not there yet. But uh, it's not it's not an unimaginable trend line. No, no, it's not but an I, unimaginable. I'm just trend trying line. to I'm just trying to throw in a little bit of apocalypse here. No, I mean one of the interesting things is we've seen Trump divorce sort of Republicans from traditional conservative views on things like Russia really, really quickly. Um, it will be interesting to see how quickly he can divorce the Republican Party from traditional views on things like trade, trade policy yeah. and the economy. Yeah, um, because those are kind of supposed to be the 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 gooey center of everything Paul Ryan believes in. Well, gooey center of everything Paul Ryan believes in <laughs> ought to be on a mug, David. It really ought to be. It, the of nougat of Paul Ryan bit. is just, yeah. you know, it, is, it, it, it reminds me of the fact that it wasn't weren't the centers of Oreo cookies once like largely made of lard? They are largely made of lard. Yeah. What do you think that stuff kind of is? I could have gone a really long can- time without that concept, David. <laughs> yeah, what, Corey just, doesn't I'm know just, this you... Oreo that you speak of. What's uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. she's not familiar with the what reference? She's eating a, a French macaroon right now. Lard between right, chocolate what is the, cookies. What is... Why isn't that making everybody else vomit on the Japanese <laughs> prime minister? Yeah, right. What is this 20th century cookie you speak of? <laughs> um, in a, <laughs> well, I, I eat only biscuits. But um, in any event, 
another thing that happened while Trump was off meeting with Putin was that the rest of the uh, G20, um, or as I referred to it as uh, last week on the television, the G19 plus one, and that's kind of caught on. And I, I want my props for, I think, referring to it that way first. But the, the, they all went off and they said, well, OK, we'll do a climate deal with without you. And in fact, Angela Merkel, after the event with real Angela Merkel style, which is something a year and a half ago we never would have talked about, but she's got real style. Yeah, Angela Merkel, she, feminist icon. She is an icon. And she said that she thought that the, the uh, effort by the U.S. to abandon the Paris Climate Accord was deplorable. You know, I mean, she said it in German, but the word <laughs> deplorable resonates um, uh, with uh, all the deplorables out there. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the G19 um, essentially said, screw you, America, we're doing this and you can't get out of it. And and um, and we're just going to ignore the stand you're taking on this, um, you know, including the Chinese, including everybody. So what what do you think the consequence of that is? Other than dead air and stunned silence. <laughs> stunned just, silence. We just a wash with like your you put a thought out there, David, and we all have to to chew yeah, take on a it for a moment. No, I mean yeah, I right. mean it's precisely what we have been predicting is happening. I mean I think I think that Going back to days of yore when we gathered in in the foreign policy tiny podcast studio uh, and moving through the birth of deep state radio, we have obviously been talking about uh, you know what happens when the United States becomes irrelevant. Uh, you know who moves on, which alternative alliances form, and what we're seeing is that the world does indeed start moving on without us, uh, and we will simply get left behind. So I think there are three possible paths. One, Rosa just uh, rightly laid out, which is we become marginal to the advance of progress. And in a lot of ways, that would actually be the magnificent validation of the international order America built, that it's it's able to be perpetuated beyond our leadership of it. But I think there are two other bad possibilities. One is that you just get greater entropy. You get greater fraying of the order. And we don't notice it so much because we have such a wide margin of error. But but other countries, countries we like, countries whose futures we care about, start to get sucked down the drain of this entropy. And the third possible outcome, the bad one, and the one that the... Um, the folks who are talking about Thucydides' trap, which parenthetically makes me crazy because it's a misreading of Thucydides that I will be glad to bark on about at great length if David gives me any rope to do so, but is not the central point. I want to see the one-on-one. The emergence. I want to see like an arm wrestling. I was. I want to see an arm wrestling match. Arm wrestling between you and Graham Allison over the Thucydides. Oh come on, David. That won't. I grew up in the West. Um, come on. I oh. win that so easily. Oh. Yeah. Bar oh fight with gosh. Graham Allison. I bet I also win. <laughs> yeah, my money's on wow. Corey on that for sure. My wow. money's wow. always wow. on Corey. 
Come on, right in there, deep state radio nerds. Do you you want to do a cage match between Corey and Graham Allison over the Thucydides trap? That sounds to me like pay-per-view bonanza. Let's invite Graham Graham Allison Allison and I are intellectuals, but only one of us is a brawler. Wow. Wow. She's already trash-talking Graham Allison, and I'm sure he's... I've always wanted to see him in a spandex wrestling outfit. But oh, David! So this, <laughs> no, that is I'm not a good way to get to him to come on to Deep State Radio. I am not strong enough to bear that visual. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. Corey Corey in spandex. I think we could all we could all live with that. That would be fine. Corey, I'll just oh. have have our listeners who don't know Corey personally know Corey is extremely fit. Graham Allison, I she could I beat you up for so sure. Much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Corey, Corey is very tough. Anyway, I interrupted you, Corey. You were in the midst of a role. Well, if the first if the first path is roses where the liberal international order is self-sustaining without us. That's also the argument um that Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman uh, excuse me, Elizabeth Cobbs makes in uh, American Empire that the rules are now self-sustaining. We don't need to we don't need to enforce them in any way. The second alternative is is greater fraying of the order where it's it's ragged edges, the states holding on tightest but least able to to sustain it without our assistance get pulled under. So this is the regress of democracy. It's the uh, introduction of trade barriers. It's the interruption of progress towards liberal outcomes. And then the third alternative is the rise of another rule giver, either consensually, Angela Merkel, or forcefully, uh, a rising China, some collusion between China, Russia, Iran, and other malevolent actors. Well, that's a that's a very good point. It elevates the conversation from the cage match imagery earlier. Let's go finally to this this Putin meeting. One of the things that who do you think would win in a cage match a- between Putin and Graham Allison? Now we're really getting <laughs> into the important questions. Putin, yeah. What are you talking Putin. about, Putin? Putin would floss his teeth with Graham Allison, <laughs> who I like, by the way. I don't want to. I don't want to pick on Graham I Allison. I too think here, very Corey... well of Graham Allison. It was by no means a comment on his just scholarship. Just because he's wrong. Just because he's wrong <laughs> about Thucydides doesn't yeah. mean that we should let Putin. If Corey didn't crush like him. everybody who was wrong, she wouldn't have nearly <laughs> as many friends. <laughs> wow, that's true. Given how many of us are wrong on a regular basis, but there was this meeting, including me, and in the meeting were Putin and Lavrov, and then there was Trump and Rex Tillerson and a couple of translators. Now, that was the first sign that whatever was going to happen was going to be bullshit. In fact, I consider this a certain kind of a work of art where one group of people can look at the outcome and see one thing and another group can look at the outcome and see another thing. And that was the design. The design was to give Trump a win at home and Putin a win at home. But is that really, really what happened, Susan? No, um, I I think Putin may have gotten a win. Trump certainly didn't. Um, And we knew from the outset that this wasn't going to be 
uh, you know, a, a real shining moment for the United States to stand up against Russian aggression. And that's because of the decision to not include H.R. McMaster or senior Russian director Fiona Hill uh, in that meeting in the first place. Um, that sort of concession of uh, excluding um, the people who are sort of Putin skeptics and actually have... And actually know something. Exactly. Um, sort of experience and, and, and are tough and have sort of the requisite... Those guys are so negative. What bummers. Yeah, I wouldn't invite them either. And reportedly Trump excluded them because he was concerned about leaks. Um, Right. Which seemed like... Because your uh, national security advisor is totally going to leak. Exactly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right. That you have bigger problems if that's what you're concerned about. But he wanted to, to, you know, not have too many people in the room. And at the time, it seemed like, oh, you know, well, that's because he's going to do this sort of chicken shit, not bring up election interference. And, uh, you know, he doesn't want anyone who's going to make Putin, you know, uncomfortable. Um, You know, in retrospect, it served a different goal. and I don't know if it was intentional or not, um, but that goal is that there was no one with any credibility whatsoever in the room. Um, and it is now impossible to really know what happened um, because we have one account coming out of uh, the Kremlin and we don't believe them. Um, and we have another account coming out of the White House um, and we don't believe them either. Um, and so because there was no one with any kind of external credibility to talk about what did or did not happen and what what was or was not discussed, there's there's actually no way for the American people to even know, right? So Trump tweeted yesterday that sanctions were not discussed. Sarah Huckabee Sanders just gave a press conference in which she said election-related sanctions were discussed. So we're sort of, we're in... Um, the the position of really being unable to evaluate anything beyond knowing it wasn't good, it didn't serve American interests, um, uh, and the optics are really bad. But in terms of even the capacity to evaluate the substance, we have lost that. Um, And and my fear is that that actually was an intentional choice on the part of the Trump administration. So I actually want to disagree with my friend Susan on this How one. How dare you? Um, I don't. I think she is, of course, right that we can't it properly evaluate what happened in the meeting. But I disagree with her on two points. The first is that there was no one with any credibility in the room. I think that's unfair to Secretary Tillerson, who, um, while... I don't agree with him on many things. Uh, He has actually been quite solid on sustaining the sanctions against Russia over Ukraine and laying out a public criteria that the United States government won't support sanctions relief for Russia until Russia leaves the territory of Ukraine. I I was worried that's what was going to give in this meeting. And the fact that Tillerson, who does have credibility on that and who has repeatedly and publicly taken that position, was in the meeting made me hopeful that that wouldn't be surreptitiously traded away. The second thing that I disagree with Susan on is um, the notion that we have as a public, a right to everything that leaders to know everything that leaders are talking about in private. And I, I actually think, um, much as I worry about President Trump's um, dangerous softness on Russia specifically, I, I am willing to defend the principle that heads of state 
um, probably advance our interests better by having the ability to have private conversations and not immediately have to be negotiating in public. Yeah, but I'm not. Let me just ask for, for a quick clarification. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. So I'm not arguing for sort of the, the death of executive privilege or the notion that we all deserve. There should have been cameras there and we deserve a transcript. But at least those high level descriptions, I, I do think that there is a disturbing inconsistency. Right. And, and there's a right. There's certainly a right not to be lied to by our own president and our own White House. Um, and, and there is a there is a right for sort of a basic high level understanding about um, what exactly the president is trying to do on our behalf, his his goals, his sort of where he's moving in a general direction. And that's, it's not the specifics. I, I agree there needs to be space for those sort of private uh, sort of deliberations. Otherwise, you can't get anything done. I'm talking about something that's sort of at a, at a higher level of just sort of uh, accountability and, and access and, and transparency. And there's an important distinction between whether they reveal everything and whether they actually tell the truth to the extent to which they reveal anything. And if they're lying, they're lying. And I think part of the problem with this meeting is that they're lying. But Rosa, we have seen some things coming out of the meeting which are not press statements, right? There was a so-called ceasefire in a part of yeah, Syria. Yeah, we brought to Syria. That's good, right? Right, which, which Trump argued was actually uh, hammered out in the meeting. Uh, there was the cyber unit. There was an agreement to move forward in the U.S.-Russia relationship and to let bygones be bygones with whatever the heck happened, you know, in the in the in the past. And those three things we can evaluate. So evaluate them. Well, I actually on the on the Syria issue, going back to something that Susan said earlier uh, when we were talking about the the putative cyber uh, joint. Impenetrable cyber security unit. Um, You know, it's it's not, of course, it is not wrong to think that there are areas where maybe we can do good things with Russian cooperation. Uh, And Syria has always been one of those where, where even though there's ample reason to be skeptical uh, that there is clearly value in trying to carve out any any common ground, um, and I and I do think that, I, you know, I've, I think we've talked about this more broadly at in other episodes that uh, while it does not do to trust Vladimir Putin or anyone in his regime uh, at all, it also doesn't do to to demonize Russia. Uh, to the point where where we start thinking of Russia as and you know Putin as a sort of all powerful puppet master uh, who can do whatever he wants, as opposed to an autocratic leader trying to hold on to power in a country that is struggling in all kinds of ways, despite the continued strength of its military uh, in narrow circumstances. So 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 the Syria agreement, you know, it it we don't know yet. Uh and and there have been ceasefires before obviously that have not that have not held. Uh there have been prior efforts uh including uh, the famous uh 2013 Russian Deus Ex Machina that saved uh, Obama's bacon when he was about to well, when he was in the midst of embarrassing himself on the Syria chemical weapons red line. Um so so on the one hand, I, I am not particularly uh, persuaded that this time uh, it's all going to be great or even okay. But but equally, that's that's the one thing that came out of this where I would I would give a kind of 
you know, half uh, glass half full assessment of, you know, if a few weeks ago when the U.S. had shot down a Syrian government military plane, we were all worried about the risk of inadvertent or deliberate escalation to to open conflict between the U.S. and Russia. If that has been dialed down and indeed if we are now back to yes, yes, we're going to work together as opposed to we A, won't talk to each other and B, might shoot at each other, that's probably a good thing. And we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see if it's enduring. Who knows? Not all that likely, but it's, it's, it beats escalation any day. Well, that's a very good point and a fitting point on which to end this particular edition of Deep State Radio, the podcast that you need to make sense of this crazy world we live in. We'll be back in a couple of days with the same group of folks discussing one of our Deep State Radio nerds' favorite issues, and that is uh, the Trump troubles surrounding the Russia investigation and the other legal investigations that are currently ongoing and producing new news items on a daily basis. In the meantime, if you are a Deep State Radio nerd, please tweet out your enthusiasm for the show or do something even more grand because you may win a mug or a sweatshirt or something else, all of which will be going out on August 1st. The first big shipments of those will be going out. So now is the time to make your play by as one of our listeners did, painting the words Deep State Radio on the side of a cow. Um, what could be more <laughs> motivating? Um, uh, uh, or And certainly another thing that's been very popular I here on like Deep State Radio. I feel like that one was a tribute to me. Well, I don't. I mean, that would be a horse, and that was the other point I'm making. The proliferation of deep state radio spirit animals on the on the web. Corey's horse, Rose's dog, my pastrami sandwich, Ed Luce's bear, and David's David great undersea up. creature. Yeah, the whatever axolotl or whatever that's axolotl. called. We don't have one. Pardon me. Axolotl. What? David Sanger has an axolotl, and you used to have a lemur, but but you apparently gave it up for adoption. Right, but the lemur is still out there offering. I would adopt your lemur, David. The lemur needs to be adopted. Okay, Susan's lemur. Yeah. Okay. You hear that lemur? Susan wants you. Okay, lemur. You can be Susan Hennessy's. I don't have a great Um, track record with pets. Just if you just (laughs) lemurs are pretty hardy, though. Don't don't worry. (laughs) Don't expect. Yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, given your track record, maybe it should be Susan Hennessy's like cactus or something. But in any event, the lemur wants the lemur wants love, folks. The point is, this is a great community. Be part of it. Be active, and come back for the next episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.